0: This is Mike Munger of Duke University, the knower of important things. The sharing economy combines two features, the commodification of excess capacity and the substantial reduction of transaction costs. These two factors, combined in the Keesling matrix, are changing the world. You already know about Uber and Airbnb. Both of those commodify excess capacity, I have a car in a few minutes, you need a ride, But we need to reduce the transaction cost of being able to get access to that safely, reliably, and conveniently. Well, that's what the sharing economy does. But what about DERs, distributed energy resources, rooftop solar, local storage, switches that change you from being a user to a producer and back again seamlessly with no lag, local nuclear, and sharing capacity. Today's interview takes up these topics with the source, Lynn Kiesling herself. Four new twedges, plus this month's letter, and more. Straight out of Creedmoor, this is Tidy C. I thought they talk about a system where there were no transaction costs. but It's an imaginary system. There always are transaction costs. When it is costly to transact, institutions matter, and it is costly to transact. Lynn Kiesling works on regulation, market design, and the economics of digitization and smart grid technologies in the electricity industry. She directs the Institute for Regulatory Law and Economics and the Center of Law, Business, and Economics at Northwestern University, as well as being a research professor at University of Colorado, Denver, a member of the external faculty of the Santa Fe Institute, and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. In addition to academic work, Lynn serves as a member of the U.S. Department of Energy's Electricity Advisory Committee, after having been a member of the National Institute of Standards and Technology's Smart Grid Advisory Committee and the Gridwise Architecture Council. So far, I've made a point of interviewing people who are smarter and better informed than I am, and that win streak continues this month as I get to talk to Lynn Keesling, My guest this month on... The answer is transaction costs is Lynn Keesling? I ask guests to do their own introduction because it's interesting to hear how people define themselves rather than me give some long, boring thing. So Professor Keesling, uh, please tell us how you came to be interested in the subject of transaction costs, how you became one of Ronald Coase's foremost fangirls and how it is that we can apply transaction cost analysis to the energy field.
1: All of that in my introduction. Well, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Professor Munger. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, there, Yes, there is is nothing higher on my list of uh, things I care about than... You know, costs and and transaction costs, and so you and your wonderful podcast have been a great addition to the uh, to the ecosystem. So thank you for that. Um, I guess I should introduce myself, and then we can get into the nuts and bolts of of your question. Uh, I'm an economist, uh, and if 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 you kind of ask me first and foremost, what are the things. Professionally that matter to me about my identity. It's always I am an economist. Um, We get a lot of grief from a lot of people for a lot of good reasons. But um, but I do, I think the analytical frameworks uh, and the logical structure that economics gives you for thinking about the world is is something that I find captivating and thrilling Um, even when it's, even when we oversimplify it so that it's actually wrong, but, um, I, that's why, you know, I knew I was going to become an economist from the first time that I saw indifference curves and general equilibrium in an Edgeworth box like this. I want to do this. (laughs) Um, and I I focus on my my areas of interest are uh in and economics are called industrial organization, which is about firms, the organizational structure of firms, the um, the you know how they operate, how they compete with each other. So there's strategic interaction, but then there's also institutional analysis, and that's where uh coast comes in by uh you know, starting in 1937 and then for most of the next century, um, reminding us that uh, that the answer is transaction costs. Um, and, and so the institutional structure of production, to use his phrase, is really important uh, and changes the kind of outcomes you get rather than just having, you know, a representative firm that produces quantity Q and price, and, and they can either choose the price P at which to sell their quantity Q, or they see the prices out in the market and choose a quantity Q to sell. You know, Coase tells us that the world is much richer than that, and that it's about how do we organize production in terms of the decision-making process. And there's multiple ways of thinking about that, right? There's how do you, put the inputs together in order to, to produce some valuable output. Um, And, and then there's also the within the firm, you know, what Oliver Williamson would call hierarchy, you know, that within the firm, why, why do you organize production the way you do within firms? Why do firms exist? And why do you have managed management? Why do you have employee employees and rules and, and divisions. Um, what does? Why do, do corporate forms? Why do corporate structures take the forms they do? Those kind of questions.
0: I have, um, to, I have to ask. Yeah. I've always wondered mm-hmm. this about you. You have almost an engineering background. Your, your I do? yeah, your study of economics at Northwestern is a, that's real micro. You really were looking at. Uh, microeconomic mathematical models and all the questions you just asked, the answer is, well, they optimize. And yeah. so we use calculus to solve that problem. And if the problem's well specified, we know the answer. None of that's even interesting. And yet somehow right. you became interested in Coase, which <laughs> seems to me like, you know, you've wandered into paths of apostasy given your Northwestern background.
1: I um what you say is true, but I will give a a lot of compliments and credit to my Northwestern graduate education and 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 some shout outs to some of my most influential professors. Um the PhD program at Northwestern is extremely quantitative and very, you know, deep theory. And now, you know, I'm as old as dirt. So I was in, I was in graduate school, my first year, and then uh, the PhD program was 1987. So, you know, we were not quite, we were uh, right in the throes of the heady enthusiasm about game theory. We hadn't quite gotten to the heady enthusiasm about causal inference or whatever. So it was all about game theory. And of course, Northwesterns is, is known, has a comparative advantage in game theory. So I learned a lot of game theory. It's true. Um, um, I'm not a theorist. And so, you know, the, the theory stuff was always a bit of a, a struggle for me, but uh, the, 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 my fields, I, I chose my fields because they were things that really just grabbed my attention and wouldn't give it up. Um, my primary field was economic history yeah and and in part that was uh, uh I took joel Mokir's uh European economic history class as a first year grad student in part because uh the fall theory classes had just so completely been. You know, no seeing the forest for the trees. You're just in there focusing on the bark on the trees. And I needed some context to remind me why I wanted to become an economist. And so I took Joel's class, and it just, you know, it was when he was in the middle of writing The Lever of Riches. And so it was all about the role of technological change and economic growth. And these industry by industry over centuries, different examples of agricultural productivity through technological change and, um, you know, iron making and textile manufacturing and so on and so on, transportation. Uh, and, and so working with Joel was really, uh, was really a revelation and, and just one of the biggest honors of my life. And so that, you know, when you work in economic history, you've already mentioned Doug North, you know, you develop a, a fundamental, you know, part of the methodology and part of the focus is that appreciation for the role of institutions. And then my other main field was industrial organization. And uh, and then my, my third field was what we called information theory and basically mechanism design. So, auction theory get both in i o and in in information we had a lot of auction theory, and so it was um, and to their great credit, whether it was you know Bill Rogerson or rob porter or um or at the time Deborah Aaron, who was one of my professors, and she was fantastic, and I think she now uh, is a principal at a um, consulting firm. But the, they I remember them specifically for being fantastic about uh pointing out the coast literature, right? So that that yes, part of the mechanism design process is thinking about the institutions. And so we read Coase, we read Joskow, um, we read Williamson. Uh, and and so I, I give a lot of credit to my Northwestern professors for not just being the math jockeys.
0: Well, but the the you you raise an important question, and it does start to take us in the direction of your actual current expertise and contributions. Um, mechanism design, I've heard Eric Maskin in an interview describe mechanism, the problem of mechanism design as being different from a lot of the rest of economics. And most of economics, we take the institutions more or less as given. We have property rights. We have systems for adjudicating disputes. Mechanism design says, what institutions can we design to get outcomes that we want? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you have been a pioneer in is thinking about energy markets, In that way, Um, I think a lot of people naively think that markets are what happens when the government does nothing. And even if that were true, that's not going to happen in energy markets because they're not going to do nothing. So what we have is a system. People find themselves within this system. There's institutions, there's incentives, there's culture. And the system works itself out. So mechanism design is takes a step back and says, how can we either design or identify sets of rules, property rights, ways of communicating information that get us closer to the results that we want? And so how is it you became interested in energy then? And what do you see as the contribution of the energy economics field that other people who are interested in that, but don't know much about it, what sort of courses, what sort of things should they be taking in order to move in that direction?
1: Yeah. Your, your, your point and, and Eric's overall observations about mechanism sign. I mean, it's it's very insightful because uh, and I'm going to combine it. And one of the things that I, I think I like doing one of the things I like about, about what we do as, as, you know, uh, kind of academics and intellectuals is combining, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of value in us combining sets of ideas that haven't encountered each other before. And so I'm going to combine your observation with. Uh, Thomas Sowell's framework and, and, you know, he in a a conflict of visions that he uses a little differently, but I want to take what you just said and think of it in his kind of constrained vision framework that um, it would be really fantastic if we could have a full on free market in energy. I would love that. I think I, you know, just philosophically, that would be great uh Realistically, and this is where the constrained visions come in and where I think if we want to have conversations, both you know, we have pluralist conversations with people who see the landscape differently, but then also have ideas that are going to be meaningful to other people, others than just yourself is taking that constrained vision and recognizing exactly as you said, that the government isn't going to leave energy industries alone anytime soon, whether it's because of the size and scope of the infrastructure, um, the size and scope of the national security implications, um, or the perceived ubiquitous importance of energy in our everyday lives and so i think of it in that kind of soul constrained visions in the sense that you have to take realistic perspectives on what is possible um and this is again a variation of your and maybe we can discuss this if you want your um uh, directionalist, destinationalist framework, right? That, you know, I may want as a destination, uh, you know, as little government involvement in, in energy industries and energy markets as possible. Uh, we are nowhere near that right now. So and the not question- moving in that direction. And we're not moving in that direction. Uh, and so the question is, what can you do to move in that direction? And so I see mechanism design as a as an analytical framework that we can use to take what is inherently an anti-market landscape and inject market analytics and market processes and market thinking into it.
0: We've been pretty abstract so far. Can mm-hmm. you say a bit about some of you? You hold a number of positions. You work with a number of organizations. How wh- how exactly have you been able to take that sort of abstract goal that you just talked about and what kinds of organizations do you actually work on? You have three or four affiliations that I think would be, it's really very interesting the 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 ways you've been able to make contributions that are, some of them are academic, but some of them are uh, outside of kind of traditional academic. So if you could say something about that.
1: Yeah. And let's fold that in with the, if you're a student and you're interested in energy, what kind of classes do you want to take? That kind of thing. Um, Because I I think, I mean, energy questions are some of the most important and interesting and thorny. I mean, and and especially if you're a kind of market-oriented, quote-unquote, free market person, they're thorny precisely because, you know, it's not just... You know, it's not just how many uh, how many libertarians does it take to screw the light bill? You know, none the market will provide. It's really a lot of very hard, challenging questions. And so if you want to think about exactly what it is that market processes do and why they're valuable, and why they're important, energy is a great place to look. Um, my first electricity work was as an undergrad. Which I don't know if you know, but um, my mother worked for a utility, a, re- a vertically integrated regulated. Well, in in at the time they were all vertically integrated and regulated, um, and I had to write a senior honors thesis, and it was it, I had to do econometrics, and so I needed data. So I called her up, and I'm like, "Okay, can I use some of your data?" She says, "Let me ask," and she did. And um, so I used electricity data from the 1970s and demonstrated some correlations econometrically about what happened to the um, approved regulated rates uh, in response to the oil price shocks in 73, 74, and 79, 80. Um, And uh, the data came on punch cards. So back to the oldest dirt comment. Um, And I had to, you know, I marched over to the computer lab and gave them my stack of cards. And, you know, 12 hours later, I came back and had a data set. So there you go. Um, And uh, my undergraduate professors were great at having me read like classic things that, I think people don't read anymore, but that the you know, probably you and I do the um, you know, average Johnson 1962, which is like one of the famous papers in electricity regulation. And the logic is really straightforward. It's hard to show empirically, but the logic is really straightforward that if you have a regulated industry and that industry is regulated based on their rate of return on capital that they're going to have an incentive to have a more capital-intensive production structure than other industries and and more more capital-intensive than they than would be their equilibrium uh you know production structure otherwise um and like, like Baumol and bradford on the theory of the second best uh you know all those kind of classic things and my undergrad professors had me read those. So um that's one thing I I would definitely recommend to students is if you have the chance to um get good advice from your professors, you know, really, you know, take them up on that and and read the things that they suggest you read. Cause you know, here I am, you know, 40 years later and I'm like, wow. I still remember reading Bommel and Bradford and that was great. And, um, But so to, to go back to your question about in organizations and then come forward to classes that students should take, um, you know, I, I, so I've been thinking about uh, energy for a long time. When I was a PhD student, I worked on technology adjacent questions, but they were more institutional you know, having to do with the 1860s in Britain, not directly about energy, but I always maintained an interest. And then in sort of 2000 2001, uh, when the California, but yeah, and this is after some states in the U.S. had undergone regulatory restructuring and had created wholesale power markets. Uh, and California did this and did so in an epically bad way, as Californians want to do. Uh, and and they were suffering the consequences of it with blackouts and price spikes. And um, and so then I returned into uh, doing more kind of policy analysis and and market design analysis. Um, and then, you know, I, I have always um and I was uh, on the, I had returned to Northwestern at the, by then. I was on the teaching faculty. And, um, but I've also always had, as you said, a couple of other different affiliations. You know, in the early 2000s, like right after Vernon Smith won the Nobel Prize for Experimental Economics, he and I were working together to try to um work with federal and state regulators to get them to use experimental economics to test bed their regulatory and market design proposals before they actually implemented them, which is one of the things California didn't do. Um and more recently I've been uh working with um a co-author in a at Slack National Laboratory, David Chasson. And so, you know, we have a very collaborative relationship. He's more of an engineer. I'm more of an economist. Um and so I, I find I work across a lot of different policy groups, uh, and I also am currently serving on the Department of Energy's Electricity Advisory Committee, which is basically a group of, of a diverse group of people from with different roles uh, informing the DOE's Office of Electricity and, you know, giving them recommendation and guidance. Um, so... Yeah, I, I do a lot of different things and it's it's really fun. It's not a conventional academic go work your face off for six years and get tenure and then do that for the rest of your life path. But um, but it's been really gratifying.
0: One of your most cited papers uh, was on the grid wise test bed demonstration project, which I didn't even know what it was. And so the, the the a lot of these are very highly applied, but some of your work also has been pretty theoretical. Um, if someone wanted to be you, what kind of classes, is there some path that leads there or is it just a high wire act?
1: Uh, it's, I use a high wire act as a good way so to the, put right,
0: it After yeah. you get out of grad school, work with a Nobel Prize winner. that That's pretty hard to.
1: <laughs> yeah, working with Vernon was a treat. You no, know, which will not surprise anyone who has ever met Vernon. Um, uh, yeah, so if you're interested in energy things, I mean, not every not every place has an energy economics class, and and not and you don't have to be an econ major to do energy stuff, right? There's there's a, you can be a poli sci major and do energy stuff. You can do public policy, um, environmental studies, uh, but I do think having a nice breadth of both what has worked for me in my case was taking classes in industrial organizations so learning about industries and firms and markets and then teaching uh because I, I, I developed an interest after graduate school in environmental economics so i taught environmental economics i taught energy economics um But if you combine those fields with, uh, understanding of firms and markets and industries, whether it's through actually taking classes or, or some other way, um, I think that's the, that's the combination because, uh, the, then that positions you well, especially if you're, you know, listening to a podcast called The Answer is Transaction Costs, it positions you well to think about the institutions and you know it, it's it's really the institutions that are important whether it's the the market institutions the regulatory institutions the within firm you know hierarchical institutions and all of those are really valuable lenses through which to look at at energy questions and the energy questions are just going to get more and more Big and important. Uh, Hopefully they will get more nuanced because for the past couple of decades, especially where energy intersects with climate, you know, the politicization of the climate questions and it has has made things difficult. But um, but it's a really ripe area for for future interests for students, I think.
0: Well, i've I've I have talked your ear off and asked you to give no. some, because your, your background is is a bit unusual, but uh, perhaps we can move then in the direction of the specific work that you have done that I uh, was glad to at least watch uh, and participate in. Um, there's a Ronald Coase always said that the way economists should do things was to go and look at what people actually do. And Friedrich Hayek claimed that if we look at the institutions that emerge over time, they probably would tell us something important about how things work. Lynn Ostrom was kind of the Darwin of institutions. She went around the world and looked for the strange beaked finches of institutions, which if you look at how they're adapted to local conditions, the fact that they're in equilibrium means that they're doing something useful. That's not necessarily the same with energy institutions, though. And you've already given the and Johnson example. Mm -hmm. Given the regulatory structure, the emergent institutions might be quite pathological. And so designing policies – And I'm always a little worried about calling it design imagining alternative institutional arrangements is something that you have made some important contributions in. And I warned you at the outset, there were two concepts I wanted you to talk about so that someone who's looking at this area would have some understanding uh, be able to translate it, because even though the words mm-hmm. are English, it doesn't appear to be written in English. Those two concepts are smart. So smart grid, uh, the the not just smart things in my house, but a smart grid, and then mm-hmm. distribute it. Obviously, if we're going to have some centralized generation process, we then have to distribute the energy over the grid. But if generation and storage is itself distributed, how are we going to manage that? And you contributed something to some of my work years ago now uh, where you noted that there's two really important different things going on at the same time when it comes to the sharing economy. One is the commodification of excess capacity. So if I have excess capacity, rather than just paying to store it, I'm able to be able to sell parts of it off if I can reduce the transaction cost, which is the other part. So the commodification of excess capacity and the reduction of transactions cost, somehow those are connected to distributed energy resources, has been one of your insights. And so I, I realized that question was laden with jargon, but if you could <laughs> demystify it for us a bit, I'd appreciate it.
1: Oh, there's a lot in there. Um, uh, let's start with let's start with Hayek since you mentioned Hayek, um, and then we'll we'll end with smart and distributed. The and, and th- this is your point is a really important one, and I I think a not not enough people appreciate it, which is that. Um, you know when we're thinking about markets and and how markets emerge and and you know they don't just kind of emerge de novo always it's it's you know markets emerge within particular social contexts, and those social contexts have kind of pre existing pre existing relationships and institutions and uh in the case of, um, and and that's why, you know, uh, and again, this is with the kind of idealized, you know, uncon, you know, constrained vision versus some kind of idealized vision, you know, that when I think about that kind of idealized uh, markets um, concept. Uh, and, and, and when we read Hayek and we think about Hayek and then the emergence of markets, um, as an organic process and you invoked Darwin and an evolutionary process. And that's, I think, very compatible with, with what I have in mind. Um, and I, for various reasons, um, uh, and some of these we may wanna dig into in more depth, if you like, but I think there are a lot of reasons why when we talk about human institutions and you know social institutions such as market rules um legal frameworks that enable us to live and work together peaceably um, that they don't always. Uh, have that kind of simple fitness inference that we can get from Darwin. And I think even Hayek recognized that, that just because something evolves into a particular form doesn't mean that that form is the most fit and and going to be kind of healthy and beneficially adaptive to, to all the people. And in part, that's because of, you know, our big brainstones and and the fact that we, you know, we can form coalitions. We, you know, this is where the political economy comes in and, and public choice comes in. We form coalitions. We have particular interests. We can do things to try to further our interests in ways that are much more involved than other species. And so, you know. Uh, design design with when we talk about institutions design is always going to be part of the story whether it's um, you know private kind of private individuals interacting and forming institutions or you know bringing in the state as an actor so um, I've taken to talking about institutions as hybrid you know the, the the Kind of you said you don't like to use the word design and I don't either and so that's why I've come to think about what we see when we talk about you know regulation political economy is these hybrids of partially planned partially unplanned partially designed partially emergent uh and, and that the the planned and the emergent kind of You know, interact with each other over time. And so it's a lot more nuanced and difficult institutional landscape. Um, And that's why, you know, Ostrom's work is so profound. Um, And so that means when you come into a landscape like, let's put ourselves in, say, 2004 uh you're in a world in the electricity industry where you've got a hundred years' worth of government regulation right so and that regulation takes a particular form It's called rate of return regulation. It's mostly implemented at the state level, but then there are are certain transactions that cross state boundaries. those are deemed to be under federal jurisdiction so of course now you've got a two layered regulator. Uh, that itself causes lots of problems. <laughs> um, it also solves some problems, but it causes more problems than it solves. Um, and, and, and so you, you're coming into this with this complicated regulatory landscape and with these firms in this industry that have been regulated for a century. And the way they make their profit is by investing in stuff. And so, you know, the more, you know, in in up to, you know, up to the, say, early 2000s, the more iron you put in the ground, the more power plants you build, the more wires you string, the more holes and towers you build, the more substations you build, the more profit you're going to earn, because then that enables you to serve more people. And the more people you serve and the more electricity you serve to them, the more money you make. This gets more complicated for various reasons, but one in particular is the tensions that are brought in because of the environmental impact of energy of electricity production, right? So electricity generation from fossil fuels generates a whole bunch of um, what the Environmental Protection Agency defines as pollutants. So sulfur dioxide, particulate matter, nitrogen oxide, et cetera and then there's greenhouse gases and um you know greenhouse gases don't fit neatly in that category although the EPA and some others have really tried to shoehorn them in but they don't fit there well and and of course the regulation of greenhouse gases has been contentious at the federal level so you have states out Kind of out, you know, rolling their own thing with respect to, to greenhouse gas policy and doing these things called renewable portfolio standards and da da da. So you get this really complicated patchwork landscape across the states. Um, but what it does mean is that you get more, you know, the, 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 space that the regulator has to inhabit is more complicated it used to just be okay what should be what should the rate of return be that the utilities get on their assets but now it's like oh we have to think about greenhouse gases and this and that the other um and then layer on top of that the fact that for about the past what would you say 25 years we've been digitizing
0: yeah, it's hard to know when it would start because um, yeah. it required a combination of the ability to write and sell apps and to have little local mm-hmm. The somewhere probably around 3G. So phones okay. that could communicate over 3G, which I think was in the early 2000s, yeah. so nearly 25 years.
1: And then we get the iphone in 2008 so so yeah so let's let's call it 20 years we've really been digitized the economy itself has been digitizing and this is some of the stuff that you know you write so so brilliantly about and so you you take this digitization that's you know i mean it's starting in the 1950s but it really kicks in in the early 2000s um and you you know, so you kind of look around you're like, "Wow, this you know digital economy there's this great service called Amazon i buy I order a lot of stuff and boom, it shows up at my door. um I can go look on Zillow and look at all the different house prices and all the places I might want to live, like Aspen, Colorado. Of course, once you look at the house prices, then you <laughs> abandon all thoughts of aspen, but um, so from Amazon to Zillow, right, we have a digitizing economy and the electric system is itself inherently analog and mechanical, right? It's all dials and switches. And, um, and so the digitization that really starts in the mid 2000s is a striking difference. And, and this kind of gets to your mention of the Gridwise Olympic Peninsula project, which is a lead into the idea of a smart grid. Um, uh, cause I'll give you a, the answer up front, smart basically just means um, able to take a direction and act on it, right? So it's a digital. Um, we're, we're moving towards automation. You know, smart smart involves automation.
0: But it's not um, just a direction. Then it could be a contingent direction. It can actually right. execute a sequence of instructions. Because exactly. a light switch responds to my directions. But if a smart light switch can respond to contingent instructions in ways that I don't have to look at again.
1: Yes, exactly. And so that was in the Gridwise Olympic Peninsula project. That was the type of intelligence that we were working on was this idea of embedding digital intelligence in the the decision making process between the electricity consumer and and you know the rest of the grid, including the, the producers. So <clears throat> the idea or I'll just give you a simple description of what we did in that project. And then that is an illustration of this idea of of contingent directions and smart grid. Um so the the idea was and this was in the Olympic peninsula in Washington state in the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. Um, there's, uh, you know, it's an area served by a, a utility and um, the uh, the wholesaler, Bonneville, which is a, a federal uh, hydroelectric power producer, uh, sells power to this local utility, to sell on to its customers and they're forecasting demand growth. You know, people are moving to the area. It's a beautiful area. If you've ever been to the Liberty peninsula, if you haven't, you should go cause it's glorious and uh, just beautiful. It's hilly, very mountainous. Um, and, uh, but that they were worried about demand growth and what's the traditional kind of 20th century way that you respond to demand growth especially if you're a regulated utility, you build more stuff. Right? But here are people moving to this glorious, pristine area precisely because it's glorious and pristine, and you can't build more stuff. And so what are you going to do? And so these, the utility and, and Bonneville approached um, the engineers I worked with and asked them this question. And they said, well, it, you know, we, if we can't build more stuff, then we have to work on making demand more flexible. And, uh, some people I think care like these days like to characterize that as, um, curtailing demand or cutting back your demand. And I'm like, yo, but that's not what we were doing at all. Because what we were doing was using market clearing price signals as the way to make demand more flexible, right? So send you a price signal or actually more importantly, send your thermostat a price signal without your having to be involved at all. And you've told your thermostat, your preferences. And so this is where the contingent direction that you mentioned comes in, right? So you can basically say, well, if the price goes you know, from here to here, if the price goes above, I set a trigger price, the price goes above this price, then uh, turn my heating down from you know, 76 degrees to 72 degrees, right? So turn my temperature down, so I'm not using as much electricity for heat. But what controls the device is the price signal. And the device behaves in response to the price signal according to your preferences that you have already told your thermostat. And that's kind of out at the edge of the network, That's the idea of intelligence, of a smart grid, where you can give devices instructions. They can interact with each other in ideally, in my case, in a market process. And as their demand and supply characteristics change, um, that's going to allow for price discovery to happen. Right. So it's a very Hayekian process that price discovery happens as the conditions change and you use that changing discovered price as the control signal to tell the thermostats what to do.
0: So you've elaborated how digitization helps in the reduction of transaction costs. So the two sort of uh, most quotidian examples were Amazon and Zillow. I have this digital process where I can identify this information and these smart thermostats are able to exercise contingent directions in a way that's very simple. But digitization also does the other thing, which allows the commodification of excess capacity. So Mm -hmm. if I have some local generating or storage ability, I may switch back and forth, not the amount that I'm demanding. I switch back and forth between being a supplier and a demander. I may be able to mm-hmm. supply to the grid in the afternoon and demand from the grid in the morning if it's cold. And so the the I, I wanted to emphasize both parts of these and have you talk a little bit about the commodification of excess capacity because that's closer to the DERs or distributed energy resources that you've been working on more recently.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this is a, uh, actually a current project, which is – a follow on from, from the Olympic Peninsula project. And, and, you know, we've through, through this work, we've, uh, contributed to creating a field called transactive energy. Right. So, uh, it's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> My work think... here is done. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, coast would be happy. Um, And so so we've been since the mid 2000s, we've been developing transactive energy and um, different people have different ways of different flavors of it that they've developed. What my co-author, Dave Chasson, and I have have very much emphasized uh, and, you know, to his great credit, because he's an engineer and a physicist. He's not an economist. Um, But he really. When we started working together, he really glommed on to the idea of price discovery and and that in a complex system of systems, which is what the electric system is, right, is, you know, you have all these humans around the edge of the network, you know, living their best lives and not wanting to be energy managers, but they want to be comfortable. And, and to quote Amory Lovins, you want to have cold beer, and warm showers and and so, you know, for us, consuming electricity is a derived demand. I, I don't wake up in the morning like, oh, I'm going to consume some of this delicious electricity today. Um, And so, you know, we're out here living our best lives and using electricity to do it. But we are constantly, you know, having changing circumstances Um, and. Uh, you have these you know, complex systems that are the electric system when you think in terms of the infrastructure, producers, consumers. And so if you're going to have a, a, a resilient, efficient system out of that, price discovery as a process for enabling the devices to communicate to each other uh, makes a lot of good intuitive sense. So, so we've been, you know, carrying that idea of having the devices submit bids. Um, you know, we Dave was really inspired. We uh, Vernon and Bart Wilson and I went out and did a, a study session with them out in the Pacific Northwest, um, and did a double auction. And so introduce them to experimental economics and the whole idea of, you know, having buyers submit bids and sellers submit offers all simultaneously. And you get this very information rich environment. And that really inspired this idea of transactive energy. Um, And so fast forward to today, and we're in year two of a five year uh, Department of Energy, Energy Funded Connected Communities project where we're building out a transactive energy platform with um, a, an electric cooperative in New Hampshire and um, an energy efficiency uh, agency in Maine. And now, you know, in 2005, when we first started doing this, it was all thermostats. Now, you know, digitization has progressed the technological change in the energy space has progressed so that now we have electric vehicles, we have batteries and the battery is fascinating from precisely the point of view that you described, because you can, you know, it used to be in the old analog, you know, one way electric grid, here's a power plant, power plant pushes current down a set of wires. You flip the switch, your light goes on. And so you have one role in that and you're the consumer and there's one action you can take on, off, on, off, on, off. Um, with a battery, you can be a producer or a, con- well, not, not really batteries don't produce energy, right? You can provide energy that you have. Yeah, you can be, yeah.
0: be a seller at the margin over
1: a period. Exactly. Of time. Exactly. So if you have previously used energy to stored energy in your battery you can then sell that stored energy to someone else so you can either be a buyer or a seller depending on your what's going on with you your opportunity costs or you know what the prices are doing you know so you know sure I may want to keep my battery at like 80% charge just just in case for backup cuz you know who knows you know bad weather whatever i i batteries are batteries are insurance right, and so I might want to keep it at a high charge just for insurance purposes that's the whole reason I bought the thing, but if there's a price out there that's high enough that that can induce me to discharge down to say forty percent and I can take that that amount of energy and sell it to someone else and and that's a win win
0: and there are mean we could talk about this all day, and I'm sorry to put you through all this, but there, there's one <laughs> more concept in the in- interests of time um, that I think we if you've studied energy at all, you just take for granted. but one of the things that the capital intensive system was able to use to justify much larger investment was the problem of peak load. And the problem of peak load is that we have to be able not to have brownouts at whatever the time of maximum use is going to be. Most of that capacity is going to be unused most of the time. If you have two more things, if you have local storage capacity and you have local generation where people have maybe uh, solar panels on their roof, We're used to thinking of storage as being expensive because it's expensive to generate. At the margin, once you have solar panels, it costs almost nothing to to generate that and then put it into a battery. And so people are likely to start investing in excess capacity in batteries. If you say it's insurance, that's right. But if I get a battery that's twice as large as I need then if I go to 50%, that's all the insurance that I need. The other part of it, I can then sell back to the system, which we no longer have to worry so much about peak load problems. There's a lot more redundancy and resiliency in the system.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. Resilience is precisely the concept that, that, uh, you know, the electricity industry is moving towards is thinking about resilience. Um, In that old analog system that you described with, with uh peak demand, uh, you know, there are some, you know, and there were some or some generators, you know, if you're in this system where you have just these big power plants, there are some generators that get built. And, you know, these are big, expensive pieces of machinery and, you know, millions of dollars, and they may run four hours out of the year. You know, so four hours out of the 3,760 hours in a year. And they're sitting idle the rest of the time. And, you know, the, 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 one of the debates that goes on currently in energy is, you know, aren't batteries and solar more expensive than than the old, you know, centralized power plants? And I'm like, well, you know, compared to what? You know, maybe on like a, and and the argument is usually because, you know the the capacity factors or how how many hours out of the year the wind turbines run or the solar pv runs capacity factors are maybe only like you know 30 40 percent max and that's you know really probably 30 to 35 percent if i'm being more realistic um and so you can really only use those expect to rely on them like a third of the time whereas a uh A coal fired power plant or natural gas power plant, you you flip the switch and in a couple hours, off you go. Um, But there's also that opportunity cost of the fact that that stuff gets built and then it just sits there except for four hours of the year when you need it. So that peaking, the peaking phenomenon in electric systems that don't use prices to try to. Um flatten demand over time uh is a very costly it's a very costly way to just let assets invest in assets and let them sit idle um i mean they may may make a return on investment because those four hours they get paid an absolute ton of money.
0: avoiding, avoiding rolling blackouts is really worth a lot, both Mm -hmm. just in money and in terms of what the politicians are willing to pay to make sure that doesn't happen. So we've arrived now at the original destination that I was hoping for. Digitization is allowed for two (laughs) things. One is demand management. So Mm -hmm. you get smart system demand management where people put directions into the system. The other is supply management. (laughs) where we're able to smooth out what would have been the big problems in the requirements for supply. And as a result, we're on the verge of – well, the – I I think a number of people, I I have friends in Chicago and in, in New York when Airbnb was legal in New York, they had a much bigger, nicer apartment than they would have had because a month of the year they would go somewhere else and rent out their apartment. And that meant they had a nicer apartment, they had excess capacity, they would rent out part of it. Mm -hmm. electricity may start to work the same way where we get endogenous increases in distributed energy resources in neighborhoods where people just for their own selfish reasons are going to invest in more generation and more storage. But the result is there's a lot more resilience in the system. So it's actually an example of something that looks like an invisible hand mechanism. If we're able to free up that sort of creative energy. And so the regulatory problems that we're going to face on that, some of your contributions, I think, moving in that direction have been really important. So that if, if you wanted to say something more uh, yeah. just about the, the future of regulation, it, it's sort of from a, from 10,000 feet. How should mm-hmm. regulators be thinking about this, <laughs> that over the next decade, we can remove the impediments?
1: and so we've arrived because you know we talked about smart being you know kind of digitally enabled automated responsive devices to price signals and i should say that there are other parts of a smart grid i just described the you know price responsive transactive stuff around the edge but um within the guts of the grid there's also really awesome technologies for um automating fault detection in wires automating fault repairs, even in wires, which is pretty cool. Um, there are these, uh, you can do, um, you know, the, these called phaser measurement units, PMUs to, to you know, and, and kind of uh, distribution system automation and digitization. So there's all kinds of stuff within the guts of the grid that are also part of the smart grid. But for me, the, what really characterizes the smart grid is the, the stuff at the edge um, and then we get the decentralization that you've just alluded to and i think you know it, it, one thing um with uh serena kim who's at north carolina state and rim baltaduanas who's at gettysburg college and spending this year on leave at slack national laboratory uh working with with my co-author dave chatson um, and some engineers at the University of Colorado Denver, we have a National Science Foundation funded research project on what we call vehicle grid integration. And so it's it's basically going into the in-depth study of the kind of things that you're describing that if if you have bi-directional charging of electric vehicles and you can integrate electric vehicles into your building systems as well as into the overall power grid, uh, how can those electric vehicles serve as an as an energy resource so that they're useful other than just for you for driving? And and, and if we have, if we do a good job of that kind of technology and regulatory and market design and pricing, you know, allowing for, you know, you send a price signal to my EV and, you know, if the price, if the market price is above uh, my trigger price, then I'll discharge and, you know, sell out of my battery. If the market price is below the price at which I'm willing to buy, charge my battery. Right? um then you might see more people, and this is your, your point about the commodification of excess capacity, that you might see more people at the margin, uh, choosing to buy an electric vehicle because they can commoditize it. And that'll help pay the car payment. And, and that's a good thing. And, um, it, but by so doing, um, they will create this network of this, this basically distributed storage network. Um, and it's, it's, it's like a, yeah, it, it's a resilience. You know, it's kind of like wetlands are in an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. It's like a sponge that allows for you to absorb the, the kind of natural fluctuations. Um, and some of it, I, I know some, some of the objections to electric vehicles are, yeah, you know, because of the tax credits and the the government subsidies. that, Oh, they're just—it's just a you know, just a, you know, government trying to get us to do what what they want us to do. And I'm I'm somewhat sympathetic to—I'm certainly sympathetic to critiques of subsidies. Absolutely sympathetic to critiques of subsidies. One thing though that um that I think is important here is to bring in some of that. Uh, Jim Buchanan and and Craig Stubblebine, the Buchanan and Stubblebine 1962, I think, externality paper, which not enough people have read. But they have this and they're they're talking about externalities and um, they make this distinction and say that, you know, not every externality if not, it, 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 not every externality needs to be internalized in order to get to the efficient outcome, right? So not every externality is Pareto relevant. And I think about that a lot when I think about electric vehicles, because I think a lot of people are going to buy electric vehicles because they're, because of their preferences for um, whether it's a, a kind of a resilience or a self-reliance Um, And especially once you get bi-directional charging and, you know, if we have an outage uh, and I can run my house off of my car for four hours, you know, that's awesome. Um, But that's going to be the primary thing. That's Pareto relevant. And the other stuff, you know, may or may not at the margin influence my decision of whether or not to purchase it. Um, So I use that Pareto relevant framing from Buchanan and Stubblebine to think about this a lot. Yep, that I is, thought that might
0: appeal to you. It absolutely <laughs> appeals to me. The, the, a, a lot of externalities are infra marginal and so we don't need to internalize them. I'll certainly put up a link to that in the show notes. Well, I want to thank you, Lynn. This has been terrific. You touched on far more than I thought you'd be able to get to, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised because you are quite a polymath in addition to being, I didn't mean to insult you by calling you an engineer, but. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, no, I've,
1: I've learned a lot of engineering along the way. It's, so, it's engineering, hard.
0: Stuff. Engineering is something that we have to do a better job of when it comes to engineering institutions and in the energy field, uh, it's clear that we're not going to move in the direction. Uh, it's not even clear what would have the the transition to a market process for energy would be pretty wrenching. And so at the margin, you're, you're moving towards improving a lot of things. Um, is there, is there any one thing that you think is important that the government of state should consider doing tomorrow?
1: Other than than allowing retail competition and retail choice and removing entry barriers in all parts of production and consumption of electricity, <laughs> uh, other than that, uh, no. And, and to to your earlier question about you know what should regulators be thinking about, um, and and this is you know one of the hats I wear is I direct a center called the Institute for Regulatory Law and Economics, and we started in two thousand four. And I've been the director since 2017, 2018. And we do an annual workshop for state public utility commissioners and staff and uh, to teach them about some of these foundational principles of, you know, supply and demand markets. What does the natural monopoly theory model say? uh what does regulatory theory say uh schumpeterian dynamism you know the perennial gale of creative destruction and why the natural monopoly model is uh not always correct or useful um institutional and organizational economics public choice theory clay christensen's um innovator's dilemma you know and and because a lot of regulators come into the job as lawyers and it's a very technologically turbulent time. And they're being asked to make decisions based on a lot of stuff that isn't just the rate of return regulation stuff. And so I think the better economic fundamentals that they're familiar with, the more they think about, you know, Coase and Hayek and Schumpeter and market process and double auction and And how digitization can allow you to have more markets because it reduces transaction costs Um, that they they may not be introducing retail competition in their states anytime soon, but they will be introducing dimensions of market liberalization where they didn't exist before.
0: That's a terrific place to end. I really appreciate you being a guest on Tidy C, Lynn Kiesling, thanks very much.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I had a great conversation with you.
0: Whoa, that sound means it's time for the twedges. These weeks, economics jokes. First twedge comes from Bill Heasley, the insurance insider. He notes that electric companies have a new practice of sending these colorful monthly evaluations of your energy uses. How much electricity did your house use last month compared to other houses last month and compared to your own use the same month from the previous year? Now, Bill points out that this violates a fundamental premise of microeconomics. You can't make interpersonal utility comparisons. See, electric companies or utilities, you can't make interpersonal utility comparisons. Good one, Bill! What do wind turbines think of energy efficiency? Well, they're big fans, of course. I think that's the worst thing I've ever heard. How marvelous. Third, when Albert Einstein died, he met three people who said they were scientists. They're all waiting in the long queue outside the pearly gates. To pass the time, Einstein asked people what were their IQs and said he would be able to tell them what their profession was. The first replied, 190. Wonderful, exclaimed Einstein. You must be a physicist. We can discuss the contribution made by Ernest Rutherford to atomic physics and to my theory of general relativity. Second answered, 150. Good, good, said Einstein. I look forward to discussing the role of nuclear-free legislation in the quest for world peace and the problem of controlling proliferation. The third scientist mumbled that his IQ was 94. Einstein looked down for a second, paused, and then said, So, what is your forecast for inflation next year? The story being Einstein didn't really think much of economists. Fourth, I asked ChatGPT GPT to tell me a joke about electricity and economics. Here it is. Why did the wind turbine and the solar panel start a comedy duo? Because they wanted to show everyone the difference in their personalities. The wind turbine said, I always blow people away. And the solar panel replied, well, I prefer to use my sunny disposition. Now that's a terrible joke, but Russ Roberts on Econ Talk has made that, has actually used that parable about the man who was in the coat and the wind and the sun were arguing about who was stronger. And the wind said, I'll blow his coat off. But the wind blowing just made the man pull his coat tighter around him. Whereas the sun beat down and the man took off his coat by persuasion. So I guess the chat GPT sort of borrowed that in a way that's, well, even less funny. It's time now for this month's letters. This letter is from SS. SS says it might be worth a line or two on the podcast to talk about Shohei Ohtani's new baseball contract and the transaction costs that are involved in it. He links to an article from Reason Magazine, and I'll put up the article in the show notes. In the article, Eric Berm talks about the the way that the Shohei Ohtani contract was structured. Baseball superstar Shohei Ohtani signed a new 10-year contract this week with the Los Angeles Dodgers, who have promised to pay an eye-popping $700 million. But unlike most contracts in sports, that $700 million won't be doled out over the 10-year term of the deal. As a result, both Ohtani and the Dodgers are poised to be tax Dodgers. Well, sorry. Some of the taxes they might otherwise be obliged to pay on the record breaking deal will be deferred. Twenty-nine year old Otani will collect two million in each of the next ten years. The rest of the sixty-eight million salary will be deferred for a decade, and the Dodgers will owe it to him in an annual installment starting in 2034. By the time Otani collects the last of those payments in 2043, he'll be 49 years old and almost certainly well into retirement. Because he'll be Playing most of his games in high-tax California, taking most of his pay via what's effectively a fixed annuity, gives Otani the possibility of avoiding some massive tax payments. By the time he starts receiving the 68 million payment, he may be able to avoid state income taxes entirely. That's what the money is for. By living someplace like Florida, or by moving back to Japan. End of quotation from the article. Well. The reason that that is interesting and why it has to do with transaction costs is that having to structure a contract that way, it's only being done as a way of reducing tax liability. And so there's this never ending arms race between the tax authorities and people who are trying to pay workers money. You're just trying to come up with a contract that makes both parties better off. But the contract is distorted, in this case, dramatically distorted by being concerned about taxes. So a tax system imposes an additional cost beyond the tax revenue in the forms of distortions and transaction costs that are imposed on renegotiating and jiggering the contract. So the cost of tax systems far exceeds their revenues. Thanks for that letter, SS. It's time for Book of a Month. I couldn't narrow it down, so there are two this time. Christopher de Hamels. The Manuscripts Club from Penguin Press, published in 2023, and Branko Milanovic, Visions of Inequality from the French Revolution to the End of the Cold War from Belknap Press, also published in 2023. The next episode will be released on Tuesday, February 27th, back to the last Tuesday of the month. We'll talk about ransomware, the problem of insurance in digital spaces, and have more Book it a months. Plus, we'll have four more hilarious twedges. And more next month on Tidy C.